Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go to Psalm 131. Maybe unfamiliar to some of you, um, but it's short, and so we only have three verses ahead of us uh, this evening. I promise we will get through all three verses, all right, in one evening, so it's not too hard of a task, or we shouldn't be too fearful of that. Um, before we begin, I want to read it for us, and then I will uh, pray, and we will uh, study it together. Psalm 131, David writes this, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for uh, this text. Thank you for uh, just your word that we can study it together. And Lord, now I do pray that you would just be with us as we walk through this text, that you would uh, imprint it on our hearts, that we would learn the lessons that we need to learn, that we would understand the truths that are here that we need to glean and apply to our lives. Pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would just illumine those things to us so that we can understand them. Pray that you would just help as I preach, Lord, what a task to take your word and share it with your people. Pray that you would help me to be able to live through this psalm and that it would be true of my heart uh, even this evening. We ask this all in your name and praise you for it. Amen. He did not have an easy life. Uh, he was the last born. And in a family of mostly boys, uh, that meant that he got picked on a lot. He seemed particularly good at making enemies, whether he was looking for it or not. He seemed to get into fights, into trouble, uh, wherever he went. He lost his best friend when he was young. When he was older, he had a wayward child that went astray. He was a dysfunctional family, if you study his life. He battled loneliness, anxiety, and depression. It was not an easy life. Now, it wasn't all bad. There were some highlights. Uh, one, he was good-looking, and he had that going for him. He was talented. There were things that he could do that other people couldn't do, and it seemed that anything he touched went well and that he was skilled in anything he did. He was successful as a leader for a time and saw great uh, triumph there and saw uh, prestige come with his success. Before his political career, he was a war hero, so life wasn't all that bad, but he did know difficulty. And even though life was not easy, he was humble. And though he knew heartache, he was content. His testimony was one of joy and satisfaction in God, no matter the circumstance. You may have guessed, but that person, his name is David. And his testimony is Psalm 131. And we don't know the specifics of the psalm. We don't know what's happening in David's life. We don't know uh, how old he is, how young he is. We don't know. Um, but this is the psalm that David pens uh, sharing his testimony, sharing what God is teaching him and, and what he has learned. Uh, it's a song of degrees there. Um, there are uh, just 15 of these psalms that uh, Psalms 120 through 134 come together to uh, have this short section uh, in the Psalter. 
And these psalms were sung by the people as they made their journey to Jerusalem for the holy festivals. Uh, So they would set out on this pilgrimage and they would go up to the city if they were able. Uh, And as they went, um, they used these songs. Um, Journeys wasn't necessarily long, but it wasn't necessarily easy. Uh, If you're coming from Jericho, it's only about 16 miles, not too bad, especially for them because they were used to walking. It wouldn't be like us today. Uh, 16 miles may seem insurmountable for us because we drive everywhere. Uh, But for them, they're used to walking. It's not that hard. But Jericho was 1,200 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem was 2,500 feet above sea level. So it was an arduous climb. It was a difficult climb. So what did they do? Well, they did what we did. They listened to Patch the Pirate, right? (laughs) No, not quite. Uh, But they did sing. And so this psalm, this chorus here in Psalm 131 is one of those choruses, one of those songs that they would have sung together. They would have had had them memorized, they would have known them, and they would have just sung them as they went on their way up to Jerusalem. The three verses here will make up the three points for us. Simple, but I think you'll see, as I've seen, as I've kind of studied it and meditated on this week, it's challenging to live. So verse one, uh, we see what David does not do. It's what David does not do. He says, my heart is not haughty. Haughty means high or lofty. Has the idea of being tall or exalted or puffed up. And so David is saying, my heart is not filled with pride. I'm denouncing pride in my life. At the core of who I am, I am humble. That's what David is saying. David's attitude is one of continued humility. He's not worrying about himself. He's not thinking about himself. He's not inflating the view of himself. But he says, my heart is not haughty nor mine eyes lofty. Lofty means to raise high or to look up. And so David says, as my eyes are the expression of my face, my appearance doesn't show pride. This would make sense, right? If the heart attitude doesn't show pride, then his appearance isn't going to show pride. He doesn't have that upward glance when he looks at other people. He doesn't roll his eyes He doesn't have that belittling stare. His eyes aren't lofty. There's no pride in his heart, therefore it doesn't show on his face. He continues in verse 1, Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. David moves from his attitude to his appearance, and now he says his actions are not filled with pride. He doesn't allow ungodly ambition to motivate him. He's not looking to get ahead. He's not trying to run ahead of everyone else. He's not trying to accomplish things that would just bring him praise and, and honor and glory. He recognizes, he accepts, and he embraces the limitations the Lord has placed on him. He knows his place. and He's confident in it. He's content in it to what God has called him to, to the ways God has gifted him, to the different things that he is supposed to to rule over and to be in control of. That's what he focuses on. He doesn't focus beyond that. I think, one, there is a, a side of it where he says, I'm not trying to be God. 
I'm not trying to understand things that are just too high for me. There's things that I just won't understand, and I'm okay with that. So you have the Godward orientation, but you also just have the, the kind of the everyday orientation where I don't have to be involved in everything. It's not all about me. It can be about other people. It's about serving other people, focusing on other people. So David does not set his heart on things that God has not given him. He is not proud. Verse one, what he does not do, he does not do pride. David is not proud in attitude, appearance, or action. You know, as I thought about it this week, you know, pride is something that's tricky, right? Uh, One, it can be hard for us to see it. Oftentimes, somebody else has to point it out, and that's particularly painful, is it not? Uh, But pride is also something that you can't fight on your own. Because the moment you think you defeated pride, you're like, ah, this is it. I've, I've conquered pride. you got to start all over, right? Because now you're defeated, right? The moment you think you've got it shows that you don't actually understand. There are two types of pride. One would be the pride of the strong. This is commonly what we think of when we think of pride. This would be, uh, one uh, preacher said it this way, it's the pride of having. So you're proud because you have superiority, You have influence, you have talent, you have the looks, you have the possessions, you have the ability, and everybody wants it, right? It's the pride of having. You see this in boasting or in arrogance or flaunting it to other people, making sure they see you, they make a big deal about you because you have it all. But you also have the pride of the weak. And this one's harder to catch. It's harder to see. This is the pride of wanting. You crave attention. You crave approval. You crave possessions or looks. If I only looked better, if I only was this, or if I only had that, or abilities, if I only could do that, or if I was just as talented as they are. But ultimately, it's still pride because it's thinking about ourselves. It's focusing on ourselves rather than others and God. This is seen in self-deprecating comments or feeling sorry for oneself. It's kind of being down because you don't have what everyone else has. I was thinking about Psalm 31, uh, and yesterday I went to the gym, and I realized at the gym you have both kinds of pride. Right? You have the pride of the strong, but you also have the pride of the weak. Uh, so when you go into our gym, at least, Kathleen and I joined about six, seven months ago, uh, when you walk in, they have a whole wall that is one full wall of mirrors, right? I'm not really sure why they put those in because I don't want to see myself at 6 a.m., um, but that's what they do. I don't know if they try to make it look bigger. I don't know what they're doing. Um, but if you go there, oftentimes, not oftentimes, every time you go there, there will be a certain person that will be right in front of the mirror working out, right? And they do everything in slow motion. Um, So every time they do a curl, they're looking at themselves and they're just slowly bringing it up, right? And they're watching themselves in the mirror. Now, they'll tell you they're doing it for their form, uh, but they give it away because oftentimes what you'll see, I just saw it uh, the other day, a guy was there, he was doing the slow-mo curl, but he also had his phone out taking a picture, right? Because it's not enough that we have to watch him do that and that he gets to watch himself do that, but now he's got to share with everybody that he can do one curl, right? Um, 
So there's the pride of the strong there. You see it there in the mirrors. But you also do have the pride of the weak. Uh, this is the person who is probably not as fit as the person that's hogging the mirror uh, up there in the front. Uh, but this person usually is in the back. They're less fit. They've not been at it as long, and they usually hang out on the treadmill. Uh, and they are just there walking and craving and watching that person that it's at the mirror, just thinking, well, if I was single like they were, you know, they don't have kids. They can work out all the time, right? Or, oh, I don't have their genes, right? Or, oh, they're so much younger, right? So there's the pride of the week. They're just watching the other person, just wishing and hoping that they had that. That's the pride of craving. And they usually leave, our gym is next to the Amish market, so they usually leave and pick up a pretzel on the way home, uh, and they call it, call it a good day. So you see the pride of the strong, you see the pride of the weak. And David says here, I don't have either one. It's not in my attitude. It's not in my actions. It's not in my appearance. The pride of the strong shines the spotlight on oneself and away from God because it, he thinks that he's worthy of praise. The pride of the weak shines the spotlight on oneself and away from God because he claims to know better than God. Well, if you had only done that, if you had only allowed this, but both are bringing the spotlight on themselves away from God. So David says, I have denounced all forms of pride. So I wonder about you, I wonder about me. Would those who know you well say that you are a humble person? Would your family say that you know your place? Do you insert yourself into conversations and maybe speak about things you know nothing about? This is a particularly challenging thing for us in our modern age, right? Uh, because on social media, you'll have someone post something that's a, a doctor or well-learned or a scholar, and then you have a, an eight-year-old, right, that will debate them as if they know something. You know your place. Do you think that you always have an answer and it's the answer, it's the right answer, the only one that matters? When you think back to this week, how have your words revealed a heart of boasting? Or when you think back to this week, how have your words revealed a heart of craving? And last, as I was meditating on this passage this week, verse one is an awfully bold statement, right? Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. David is directing this to God. So as I was praying through it and thinking, could I say these words as a prayer to God? Because God knows if you're lying, right? Could you say these words to God as a prayer? Are these true? Verse one, we see what David does not do, but then verse two shows us what David does. He shows us the alternative to pride. It's a wonderful, peaceful contentment of heart resting in God. Verse two, surely I have behaved and quieted myself. This word behave means calmed or level or smoothed out. It means to agree with or to soothe. It's a nice word, right? Quieted means I make myself silent. I am still, I cease, or I, I cut off. 
I'm not noisy. David has resolved himself that he will pursue peaceful, tranquil humility. He's behaved himself. He's quieted himself. Doesn't this sound great? Right? When I was first reading, I thought, okay, this is awesome, right? That's what I want of my life. That's what I want for my, for my family, that we would be behaved and quieted within ourselves, that we would know a quiet and peaceful heart, right? We want that. Um, when I think of this, I, I think it's because of what happened this week, and I'll explain. I think of a hammock. That's what I think of when I think of this, when I see that phrase. Um, for years, I have been asking, begging, for a hammock. And uh, every Father's Day comes around, and I don't get a hammock, right? I don't know why, but I've been telling people I want this, uh, and I don't get it. And uh, recently, I thought, you know what? I have sold some things on Facebook Marketplace. I've made myself some money. I'm going to go out and buy a hammock. And I started to search, and I realized why I haven't gotten one, because they're so stinking expensive, right? Um, doesn't really make sense why it's so expensive, but it is. And so this week, I went with the kids. We had to run an errand for school, and so we happened to be in Littles, and I found a hammock on clearance. And I thought, this is it. it. I might be able to sit in it once, coming from Littles, but it's cheap, and so I'll get it. Uh, and so I put it together. We got all of our yard work done that night, and I laid down, and I quieted and peaceful behaved myself, right? That's what I think of when I think of this word. For the record, for my family, the kids told me not to buy it because they were going to buy one for me for, for Father's Day. So they were going to take care of me. But that's the picture here. It's calm, not a care. It's, it's quiet. We all want this, but how did David develop this characteristic within himself? How did he get there? Because while we might sign up for the result... We may not sign up for how he got there. And we see this in David's illustration, middle and end of verse two. As a child that is weaned of his mother. So David uses this model of humility as a weaned child. Now I have three kids. All three of our kids have been weaned from relying on mom for their nourishment. And I will tell you, it was not a pleasant experience for everyone in the house particularly for mom, of course, but everybody else, too. We have to go through this process, this process of taking something away from them that they don't want taken away. And when you're that young, you only have one way to issue complaint, and that's crying, right? And in this culture, in David's culture in that day, children weren't weaned until at least three years of age, sometimes even later. Right? All the moms in here just went, whoa, right? Three years. At that point, they've developed enough that they understand what's going on. They've developed enough that they can clearly tell you that they don't like this new arrangement. And at this age, transitioning from the familiar comfort and the nourishment of mom would have been much more difficult. Something that they were used to. It's something that they knew. It's something that they relied on. And now it's being taken away from them. So why do it? Because parents know that this is what's best. It's not good for a child to be nursing at 13, right? We know that. So we say, okay, this is good. This has to happen. So to wean a child, they must experience deprivation. There's disappointment. There's self-denial that's involved. There's confusion, maybe even grief. 
It's a process. It's not an event that the parent deliberately undertakes. It's not easy. And think about the parent's difficulty. Sure, it's hard on the child, but as a parent, think of how hard it is to watch your child struggle as they go through something, even if you know it's best for them. It doesn't necessarily make it any easier. But then, think of the peace that comes once it's over, once they're weaned. The child is not frantically searching for mom to fill every demand of his stomach, but they just enjoy being near. It's not about a stomach anymore. It's not about comfort anymore, but he's satisfied. He's trusting. He's restful. He's content. He's peaceful just to be in mom's presence. So don't miss what David is saying here. Like that child, David doesn't understand the reasons God may take something out of his life. He doesn't understand the disappointment of losing something or going through something difficult. He doesn't understand why God would withhold something from him. He too would experience confusion and grief. He lives under struggle, dismay, anger, and tears. But now, in humility, he quietly sits in the presence of God, trusting that God knows what is best. God's presence is enough. It's not just what God gives him, but that God is there, that God is with him. I think of Psalm 1611, in thy presence is for fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 73, 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Just being near God is enough. It's the same for us as it is for David. God will often deprive us of something good if it will grow our trust and reliance upon him. And so David trusts in God. David says, I've denounced all pride and I'm gonna trust God. And as a weaned child now, I just enjoy God's presence I enjoy being near him. I, I love having him by me. So what in your life is pulling you away from saying, I have behaved and quieted myself? Which image best describes your heart right now? Are you the unweaned child demanding your way, demanding your rights, demanding the things that you think you deserve? Or are you like the unweaned child, just a picture of peace, picture of humility is God's presence enough for you or are you searching for pleasure and contentment elsewhere turn over to first Peter 5 first Peter 5 I think you see application of this or you can make application of Psalm 131 it enables you to apply it Starting in verse 6, we read this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Here it is, this idea of trusting. You, there's something you want, or there's something that you're worried about, there's something you're concerned about. And you say, no, no I'm going to cast it on him. I'm going to give it to him, just like this child saying, okay, I'm going to trust you. I don't understand. I don't, I don't necessarily like it but I'll throw it to you and I'll trust you with it. 
Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. See the similarities in the picture there? Psalm 131. Verse 11, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we settle our hearts, we trust God. We renounce pride. And then verse 3, we see that David turns and he calls others to hope in the Lord. Verse 3, let Israel hope in the Lord. Uh, David is saying here, join me. So this is what I've done. This is what I don't do. I don't fall after pride. I trust in the Lord. I, I rest in him. Join me. You as well. Hope in God or expectantly wait. Find your rest in him. You know, when you rest in God, when you hope in him, the situation may not immediately change. It may even get worse. But you settle you, yourself. You calm yourself in the promised presence of God. And so David says, hope in the Lord, wait on the Lord, trust in the Lord. He finishes by saying, from henceforth and forever. I love this. And now, truth be told, I didn't love it when I first read it. Uh, the first, when I was first reading, I was reading in a different translation, and they translate the word hope as wait. And I thought, oh, wait, <laughs> right? Wait in the Lord. Most of us don't like to wait, so I read that word and I thought, oh, I don't like that. And then I thought, okay, well, how long do we have to wait? And David answers that by saying, now and forever. And I thought, yeah, I don't, I don't like that, right? We don't like that. We don't like to wait. And he's going to tell us here, you got to do it forever, just waiting. But the more I thought about it, the more I, I meditated on this this thought here that we are hoping in God, it shows that God is not only concerned for our eternity, but he's also concerned with our now. That's what henceforth means. It means right now, the, the daily things that happen in our life. We can hope in the Lord. We can trust him. We can rest in him. We can wait on him. It takes those small and, and very insignificant things and it elevates them and shows us there's a greater purpose to them because we can hope in the Lord. They're teaching us something. They're growing us. And so God cares about the big. God cares about the small things that can cause us to worry or fear. So what are those things that might occupy our now where we can hope in the Lord? Well, it could be record inflation rates, right? Hope in the Lord, rest in him, wait on him, be patient. It could be college decisions. Don't know what to do, where to go. Hope in the Lord. It could be a disobedient child. Hope in the Lord. It could be the loss of a loved one. Hope in the Lord. It could be a medical diagnosis. Hope in the Lord. 
Or it could be small things. It could be a grade that's not quite where it needs to be. You know you're trying. Hope in the Lord. It could be something broke again in the house, and you're like, oh, I can't fix another thing. Hope in the Lord. It could be any kind of thing, myriad of things that cause us to worry. But God says, David says, hope in the Lord right now. Trust him right now. Wait on him right now. But not only are we hoping, are we waiting for now, but forever. If we're in Christ, our eternity is secure. We don't need to fear. We don't need to worry. We don't need to allow anything else to, to shake us. As Romans 8 tells us that we will conquer. Our hope is secure. We can rest in him. We can hope in him because we know that we will enjoy his presence forever. If you don't know Christ, if you're not in Christ, you don't have this hope. You have reason to fear. Your eternity is sure that you will end up somewhere, but it won't be in the presence of God. So if you don't know him, if you're not resting in him, then you have to say, okay, first I need to hope in him for for salvation. I need to hope in him trusting in the work that he did to forgive me of my sins. So one, David denounces all pride. He trusts God. He rests in him. And then he calls others to hope in the Lord. So where do you look for hope? Where do you go when you struggle, when life is hard, when you need help? In what situations of life are you struggling to wait on the Lord? What is that thing that just has you worked up? You're not trusting in him. You're not waiting on him. And are you hoping in the Lord for your eternity? Three short verses. One short psalm. One, we need to denounce pride. That's what David does. We need to trust in God. And then we need to call others to hope in him as well. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for uh, David's words here, his inspired words. Lord, we do thank you that we can rest in you. We can trust in you. Pray that you would make Psalm 131 our, our psalm, that we would live in it, that we would be at peace, that we would be like that weaned child resting in you, knowing that you are always only good. Thank you again for just this time that we could spend together. Pray that you would help us as we go, that we would apply this and we would live it out this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.